Welcome to the fourth Queen's Management School Good Business Podcast. My name is Laura Steele and I'm a lecturer in business and society within the school. The aim of the podcast is to go beyond the bottom line and examine the ethical, social and environmental responsibilities of businesses. And in this episode, we're focusing on the topic of data. It seems that barely a week goes by without another story about the use or misuse of data making the headlines. In 2018, it was revealed by The Guardian that the British political consulting firm Cambridge Analytica had harvested the data from millions of Facebook profiles using a third-party app without the consent of the individuals involved. It was considered to be a watershed moment in terms of public understanding of personal data. The scandal resulted in a dramatic fall in the social media giant's share price, a public mea culpa from CEO Mark Zuckerberg, investigations on both sides of the Atlantic and individuals threatening to delete their account. But how concerned should we really be about how our personal data is collected and used by organisations? And are there circumstances where it can actually be beneficial to us? In this episode, I'm joined by two experts on the subject, Catherine Torney, journalist and editor of the multi-award winning news and analysis website The Detail, and Dr. Byron Graham, lecturer in business analytics and programme director of the new MSc in business analytics at Queen's Management School. Welcome, Catherine, Byron. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Laura. Byron, can I start with you for a bit of context? It's a term we hear frequently and often use, but what actually is data? It's not a straightforward question. There, there are a few ways of thinking about what data actually is, and there are different ways of conceptualizing data. In one sense, data are the set of facts, numbers, and statistics that can be used to describe a particular object or the characteristics of a person or an, or an object. Quite commonly, what you hear now is a distinction made between small data and big data. So if you think about small data, it can be things, for example, where a business wants to find out about how satisfied their customers are about their product. What they might do is survey 500 um, previous customers and ask them about things like their age, their gender, their location, what products they bought. And they might ask them to rate on a scale how satisfied they are with the product or how satisfied they are with the service. And that type of small data is data that can be stored and processed on a single machine. So if you think about, for example, data that's held in a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet or a small database, that's contrasted with what's termed now big data. And it's a bit of a buzzword, difficult to pin down exactly what big data is. But one definition is that it is data that's got a higher volume, variety and velocity as compared with the small data. So if you take Facebook, for example, and you think of the type of data that Facebook holds on you as a Facebook user. So they've got data around your age. They've got data on your gender. They've got data on your location. They've got data on your occupation, your relationship status. They've got all of the textual data, the unstructured data that you post on your wall and on your friends' walls and all the comments that you leave um, about photographs on your wall and other people's I'm starting walls. starting to feel quite alarmed now at the thought of that. It's, it's a massive amount of data. They've also got all the image data. Every photograph that you post on Facebook can be processed and analysed, as can the text, the unstructured data. So they've got a massive amount of data about you. They know all of that information about your friends and they know that information about your friends' friends. So they know 
in one sense, they know more about you than you probably know about yourself when they start applying machine learning and predictive analytics. So they've got a massive amount of unstructured data that can then be used for various other purposes. It sounds like that poses a huge question around who actually owns that content. If I post a picture, comment on my friend's latest news. The question I really wonder next is why are organisations so interested in collecting this information? Well, fundamentally, organisations are interested in collecting data and information about people because it will have some current or future value for that organisation. So I like to think of it in terms of two different ways that businesses can use information or data. One is through improved decision making, so they can collect data on, for example, how many products were sold, um, how much profit the organisation made, uh, staff turnover, how many sick days people are taking, what's the health service waiting list. For, for some examples, and they then form key performance indicators for that business, so metrics that can be used to monitor the performance of the business and to inform business decision-making. So in that scenario, a manager of a business can make a decision based on data and evidence or can augment their own um, internal decision-making process with some data and evidence to hopefully make a better, more informed decision. The second way that businesses use data, and sort of, I guess the first way was a more traditional way of using data. The second way that businesses can use data is to develop new products and processes. So if you think of some of the top companies now, some of the biggest companies in existence now, they're completely reliant on data for their entire business model. So if you look at, for example, Netflix, their business model is partly based around a recommendation engine, which is based on collecting data about which movies people like to watch. If you think about Amazon, there is a product recommendation engine based on Amazon, which is again based on data that's collected around purchases. If you think of other companies that are producing innovative products, for example, self-driving cars is a good example. That car is completely reliant on data that it takes in from sensors and machine learning and artificial intelligence to determine um, what direction the car should drive in, whether it should accelerate or decelerate, uh, which gear it should be in, etc. So the two different ways of thinking about how businesses use uh, data and that's driven partly by an increase in the ability of businesses to utilise data more effectively. So it's driven by improvements in computing technology, it's driven by improvements in the storage of data, and crucially also the decreased cost of storage of data. So we've now got this data deluge because it's so cheap to store data. Businesses are now collecting all data and keeping it just in case it might be useful at some point in the future. So really eventually there's going to be an art in refining that and knowing what particular data is going to be of use to them going forward. Exactly, exactly. And that's partly where education comes in, where we're now seeing a lot of new courses springing up in universities around data science, business analytics, data analytics give people the skills that they need to utilise the massive amount of data that businesses are holding. 
it must be utterly overwhelming at times, but some of that sounds fantastic and really beneficial, not just for the organisations involved, but also for us as consumers. But I would imagine it throws up quite a lot of ethical concerns. What are the big debates in terms of ethics and, and data at the moment? So there, there are quite a lot of ethical considerations around how data is used and the products that are created out of data. In one sense, as you alluded to Cambridge Analytica in the introduction, and that really highlights the ethical concern around the privacy of data and how people's data is being used for secondary purposes, for example. So there's a big debate now around privacy and consent and how much consent people are required to give in order for their data to be used for other purposes. There's also a question around the extent to which people fully understand how much data is held on them and what that data is being used for. So I come from this this area, it's my background, so I understand that every advert that I see on the internet pretty much is being targeted directly at me based on my data, but I'm not sure whether um, there's a general understanding that data is being used to that extent. Um, there's been quite a few recent breaches in data over the past couple of years. Several huge companies have had very high profile data breaches, which has resulted in very private data being released uh, publicly in some cases. There are issues as well around some of the products that are developed based on data. So if you think about artificial intelligence, there's quite a, there's a, well, a very interesting debate at the minute around the uses of artificial intelligence and what impact that's going to have on society more widely. So if you think, for example, around artificial intelligence and its use in military applications, where there is potentially an application where you could go to war with another country based on killer robots. And there's a big debate now around the extent to which it should be limited, uh, whether a human has to make the final decision about whether someone should be killed or not in a warfare situation. Um, there's a few other applications of artificial intelligence that cause an ethical dilemma. So, for example, if you think of self-driving cars, the car has to make a decision in the event of an unavoidable accident. Uh, should they protect the people in the car at the you know, expense of people that are outside of the car? So there's quite a few debates around artificial intelligence. And it really spans, I mean, the whole data debate really spans a huge um, number of different areas, right from what we might watch on Netflix this evening to the potential for, as you say, AI being used in the context of war. But I think what's really interesting is whenever we see how data is used in practice, and we're really lucky to be joined today by Catherine, um, who's with us from the detail and who's used data numerous times within your professional career. Catherine, for anybody who's not familiar um, with the detail, what actually are you involved in? Um, yeah, the detail, it's an investigative news and analysis website and we would do a lot of in-depth reporting on issues of, of vital public interest and we're a not-for-profit platform. So what we would produce as journalists would be a lot of multimedia projects and that would include written articles and video, infographics, interactive charts and graphs, 
photography. We also have started to do podcasts as well. Um, we're part of a wider company, which is below the radar. And so uh, colleagues that work in other parts of the company, they would produce documentaries as well, um, TV documentaries and international films. Um, so we get our funding from a, a range of sources and we also would cooperate with other media outlets as well. And what sort of topics or areas um, would you be interested in focusing on in the detail? What type of stories have you done previously? Yeah, we, we do a lot of, we cover a lot of different topics. Key, I suppose, would be health, education, politics, justice and crime. We maybe would have done a lot of work on prisons that other journalists wouldn't cover. Government accountability would be a big thing for us um, and the legacy of the, of the conflict in Northern Ireland. We've a big project at the moment that's uh, Google funded and that's a Brexit project so that's a big focus at the moment and within a lot of our projects data journalism would be key and would be one of the main things that we look at. What sort of principles or values would you say underpins what you do at the DTL? I think, with, as with all good journalism, accuracy and truth and really strong storytelling would be things that we always aim for. Um, we really do believe in public service journalism and looking at accountability and equality and having good government and what we need for that. So we always want to do journalism that matters and we like to do journalism that other media aren't covering. So we have the time and resources to maybe do things a bit more in depth. But accuracy and good storytelling would be really key to what we do. And when did you start to realise that data could be useful in terms of the type of stories you were developing? I've, I've always used numbers and statistics, I think, in my journalism, and I've been confident enough doing that. Um, but back in 2011, I did a course over at the Centre for Investigative Journalism in London, and that was a data journalism course, and that was led by David Donald, who's since died, sadly. Um, he was brilliant, and he worked for the Centre for Public Integrity in America. So they were, London would be ahead of here in ter England generally in terms of data journalism. But I'd seen some of the great work that they were doing over there. So I did that uh, initial very basic training. And then from then on, just started to incorporate it into my work and started to think data whenever I was doing stories. So then we got funding from um, the big lottery fund on Atlantic Philanthropies a few years ago. And we did a three year project, which was called Detail Data. And we did that in conjunction with NICFA. So we worked with the community and voluntary sector and produced 30 um, major data-driven stories and that was working with the community sector to then tell those stories. So we did a really focused project on data and now it has just become part of our skills base really. It's made me realise that connects in a lot with what Byron was just saying about the public and data literacy, that we also need journalists to have data literacy, particularly whenever there's huge volumes of information being released. If we don't have people within um, that particular industry with the capacity, with the capability to be able to analyse that data, then it's not going to be of huge use, really, is it, Byron? You're, I think you're exactly right. Um, one of the interesting things that you mentioned there was around being able to tell a story from data so that it is intelligible and understandable to the, the general public who maybe don't um, ordinarily work with that sort of data. So you can put the data in a context that is relevant. You know, there's a lot of initiatives in Northern Ireland now which are great to release open data around public services, but it's not in a format that is easy for the general public to understand. You have to do quite a bit of work to put it into a story and into a, a journalistic piece that you would create. 
Yes, that would be key to a lot of what we do is making it understandable and accessible. Um, if we don't understand it or if it's getting too deep or too highbrow, then the public won't understand it. So we do act as a bit of an intermediary quite often when if we're looking at data where you have a huge data set that could maybe run to millions of rows or hundreds of thousands of rows and you have to try and make sense of it, find the main news lines in it and then get it out to the wider public. What other challenges, obviously the, the volume and the ability to analyse it is one, what other challenges have you encountered when it came, comes to using data in your work? Um, there would be a number of things. I mean, we're always aware of the limits of data. Um, while it's huge, there are limits. Um, that would include things like there can be gaps in data, there can be errors. Um, outliers are always very careful about outliers. We ask a lot of questions. It's never perfect. Um, if something looks strange, we would ask why. Um, dates, it could even be it's, it's out of date. Um, if it's government data, why are they looking at a certain period of time? Maybe we want to look at a different period of time. How has it been the last two years compared to the last five? Or how has it compared to 10 years ago? So if the timing and when the, the data was gathered is really quite important. Um, we've touched on this already, would be the personal data. So anytime we're working with or requesting data, we have to consider, is there anything here that could be considered personal? Or how do we frame our freedom of information request to make sure we can receive the data we need, but that it's anonymous enough that it will be given to us, otherwise we'll be turned down. So we would do a lot of um, research before we even request data, and that's really important. And um, we're always stressing that within our team so that we frame our request to get what we need and what is useful. Um, we want to know what the column headings are. We want to know what time period it covers. We want to know what gaps there might be, maybe what other data sets we could merge it with. So if we're looking at a certain topic, it, we maybe won't look at it just in that simple terms. We'll add in column headings and extra information that gives more weight to it. And that can be really important. Um, quite often with data, it's knowing where to stop. It's knowing not to overcomplicate it. It's knowing that you have enough or that actually we're just going way too far deep into the data that once you have your key findings um, or the main things you want out of it. The other thing that I think is lacking in a lot of data is data guides. And that's very basic. That's just generally a cover sheet on a spreadsheet that says this is what this is. This is where it came from. These are the time periods it covers. These are the column headings. This is maybe how it, there are changes in the data in the last five years, ten years you need to be aware of. Very, very simple, but often not there. And I think that should be something that is always provided, especially with government data and official figures. It reminds me of somebody panning for gold, yes. that you're going out um, into the field and searching mm -hmm. uh, in the hope that you find some sort of nugget that reveals an interesting story. Where do those sparks tend to come from in terms of the ideas about pursuing a particular topic? Yeah, they come from a range of places. Um, in terms of the data we work with, sometimes it can be another news story we've read that sparks an idea, but we then put a twist on it or we look at a different time period or we merge it with another data set. Of its people, that's where most of our stories come from, from contacts and people talking about interesting things. Um, we would see data as, a, as another source. So you speak to people, you 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 know, um, you look at reports, and this is just another source for our for our storytelling. But it is thinking about it very deeply before you put in that all important maybe FOI request. Um, it's not just accepting the data that's sitting there. It's thinking how you can look at it differently. Because I suppose for us, for a lot of our data projects, we're investing a lot of time in telling these stories. So we ideally want data that is exclusive to us. Um, and that's a very journalistic thing. I don't want to spend three months looking at data and then for somebody else to either have already done the same story or to put it out at the same time. So we would do quite a bit of work. Uh, how we 
work with something to make it unique. Mm -hmm. And that can even, for example, if we're looking at schools data and something as simple as, say, um, school result data, you know, GCSE results in every school in Northern Ireland, we would maybe add another column in, which is looking at school attendance or the percentage of children in each school that have special educational needs or are entitled to free school meals. And that just gives another layer and that creates maybe an entirely different story to what you would have if you just looked at the single data set. Absolutely. And are there any stories that particularly stand out for you where you feel that data was essential um, to Mm -hmm. making that possible? Yeah, there are a lot of stories over the years. I guess what's interesting for us is that a data story can be as simple as one figure that you've calculated and worked out and you have a key number. Um, An example of that would be I did a story way back, I think it was 2014, about suicide deaths in Northern Ireland. And it was a fairly simple data set. It was examining suicide deaths over a 15 year period, um, actually since the Good Friday Agreement. But we then contrasted that with how many people had died during the troubles in Northern Ireland. And the key top line for that story was that almost as many people had died from suicide since the Good Friday Agreement as the number of people that died during um, the Troubles. Very simple figures, but very powerful. And that comparison has continued to be used since then, um, you know, kind of four or five years on, where you're just saying, looking at these figures, comparing them to the others, and just the meaning you can take out of that. Um, We looked at ambulance response times, and that was something that ran to hundreds of thousands of rows of data. And that was looking... The Department of Health would put out regularly about response times, um, but we looked at it right down at ground level. So we looked at it at postcode level, um, how quickly were ambulances arriving, particularly in those life-threatening situations. Um, what were the outliers? In that case, the outliers were, were big stories for us. But an example, I say, I guess, of being very careful with data was there was one where it had taken something like four hours to reach a victim. Um, and it looked horrendous on paper and in the numbers. But when we asked what that was about, it turned out that there was someone who had drowned in a lake and they couldn't stop the clock on their timing until they had the victim in the ambulance and with them. So actually it didn't really take the ambulance four hours to arrive. It took them four hours to reach the casualty. Um, So that would be an example where you need to be very careful about taking something out of data and just running with it. You need to check why that's the case. It's also about your integrity and your values as well, but not just reporting that um, and saying, well, isn't this terrible to four hours to reach this particular individual, but actually giving the whole picture. Yes, it's really important. And quite often with our very in-depth articles, we're working with with the people who have gathered that data from quite early on. We're asking questions. We're trying to really get an understanding of how that spreadsheet has been set up, the meaning behind it, what the gaps are, what the really strengths are in it. Um, Another one we did, again, was fairly simple, was to do with um, abortions. And it was looking at where women from Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland had travelled to England for abortions. And we were able to do uh, a quite stark map that showed um, that something like 25,000 women over five years have been travelling over for abortions. Um, So while there was a lot of public debate going on here about not having abortions available in Northern Ireland, it showed how we were simply exporting the problem. It's not that abortions weren't happening, they just weren't happening in Northern Ireland. So that gained a lot of traction. The map that we created in terms of the infographic, again, continues to be used. So that was quite important. Um, We also sometimes create our own data sets. Um, So an example of that would be last year we looked at mother and baby homes in Northern Ireland and that was a really big investigative piece we did that had lots of different layers to it. But as part of that, we looked at um, burial records on microfilm in the public records office and we were looking specifically at Milltown's public ground site and that's where a lot of babies... um, uh, who were stillborn, unbaptized. Uh, they were buried in mass graves many, many years ago. And we looked at a year of data there in um, 1942 and 
put into a spreadsheet um, cases that we came across. But then we decided to specifically look at two children's homes, which were in Nazareth House and Nazareth uh, Lodge in Belfast. And from that, we then pulled together data off the um, the burial records and then located death certificates for some of those children from the homes. And from that, we were able to work out that um, over that single year, 43 babies had died from severe malnutrition in those homes. Um, and that was really powerful. Um, but we created our own data set and we were able to merge the information from the burial site and the death certificates and add, as with all the data, I guess I would stress, it's about the people and the stories behind it. Those numbers don't mean anything if you don't have the stories. So we were able to name the children. We were able to say what had happened to them. We were able to talk about where they were from, what their mother did. Um, but we also had to consider all that personal data information there as well. There could be living relatives Um so we had to it, we had to be very careful, but it was a really powerful data set in the end. Quite simple in terms of length, it ran to about sixty children's names, um, but that was new data that we created as part of our investigation, um, and hopefully data that can then go on and be used by other people. Um, another project we're working on at the moment, which is interesting, is we're doing a, a documentary with BBC NI, which is currently we're filming for that, and that's going to be. A, largely a data documentary looking at public expenditure, where we spend our money, how we could maybe spend it better. And the core of that is all the data and numbers and statistics. So we use it a lot in our work and in lots of different ways. It's easy, I think, certainly for people like myself to view data as just being figures on a page or on a computer screen. Mm -hmm. But whenever you hear stories, particularly around what happened within the you know the mother and baby homes, yes. you realise that they can tell incredibly powerful stories about individuals who otherwise might be long since forgotten. Yes. And that's an incredibly purposeful and important use of data. But through your work, through your research, have you developed any concerns about organisations, particularly those in the public sector and their use of data? Um, there would be a few things. I suppose we're always aware that whenever you work with data, you make choices as you go. So um, there can be selective presentation of data, whether that's looking at certain dates or comparing certain things. Or an example of that would be if you're looking at, say, um, academic achievement within schools. You can look at how many pupils get five GCSEs A star to C, but you get a very different picture if you look at the number of pupils getting five GCSEs A star to C, including English and maths. And I see that all the time. So you can select um, pieces out of data that, that present a certain picture. And for me as a journalist, it's about looking at that and thinking, why did they choose that? Is there another story underneath that that I should be looking at? Um, is it exactly the right thing they should be looking for? But it's getting underneath the layers of what you see publicly to see what that data uh, was based on and where I can look at it differently. Um, I think there's still a lot of data that probably isn't made public. There's a lot of data even that is just sitting within organisations, um, not necessarily government organisations, voluntary community sector. People don't realise the value of what they hold. And that's to do with education, which Byron's talked about already. It's people knowing the value even of... We've worked with a number of charities that have helplines and the information they hold just on their computer system, who's ringing in, who they are, where they come from, what their age, what their issues are. That is hugely valuable and could be valuable to other people. Again, you have the personal um, data issues there, but there's a lot of probably really interesting data that isn't seen in the light of day. Also, I think within um, government departments, they collect the same data all the time because they always have. They don't want to change it. For good reasons in some ways, they want to be able to compare now with 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. But I think maybe a lot of times they aren't creative enough. They don't look again and think, could we do this differently? Should we add different things in? Um, they, they do things the way they always have done. 
um, and anything that you do extra is going to cost more. You have to have the resources for it. And I don't know, because I'm not on the inside, if there are enough people making really um, important decisions about what data we hold and maybe what data we're missing. So I would like to know whether those conversations happening, because I think they are really important. Um, even things like we're now meant to have unique identification numbers within schools, within the health system. There was meant to be brilliant work done on that where you were able to link up data sets between government departments. So an example might be, how is a child doing in school whenever they receive a diagnosis of cancer? What's the impact? How can we follow their journey the whole way through? Um, there's some brilliant work that you could be doing, but is that being done? It could be, and I'm not aware of it, but I think people need to be really creative. They need to be pushing the boundaries. They need to think, how can we do things differently? But I think there's often a tendency to do things the same. Um, in terms of more basic things, methodology changes over time. You have to always make sure that you're, you know, um, uh, comparing like with like. Are they collecting the data any differently? Are there any changes? And that's where those data guides are very important whenever you receive them with data. Um, but just how open things are, you know, the public data relates to you, me and everyone else that we should have access to it. Um, and that is improving. But I certainly would like to see data being used more by lots of different people. It seems that it's got incredible potential, but requires joined up thinking. And as you say, a bit of creativity. Yes. And I think any time you talk about cross departmental working, I just the fear hits me because it often doesn't work. Um, but if there was proper cross-departmental working and people coming together and not protecting their silos of data and actually thinking how they can put them together for the public good, you know, ultimately, when you look at data, especially for us, it's what what is the impact? What is the change? What are we learning from this? Um, and we do that journalistically. And is it being done to the same level um, at government level? It could well be that I'm just not aware of it, but I think it should be if it's not. Absolutely. One thing I'd like to find out from both of you is what you think the future holds in terms of the use of data. Um, is it something that we can be hopeful about or do you think there's potential concerns going forward, Byron? Can I come to you first with that question? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm definitely optimistic about how data can be used to improve society. And I've mentioned a few examples around new products and processes around artificial intelligence and the benefit that that can have for society and for people in general. There's a, it's optimistic, but there's a caution in there as well that we need to be careful how we're using data, that it is transparent and accountable use of data. Um, we also need to be careful about the applications on what products we're developing with artificial intelligence and how that's taken forward and the wider impact. So, for example, the wider impact of artificial intelligence on the future of the workforce, on people's jobs. There are companies now working very hard to automate, for example, uh, truck drivers. So what is going to happen whenever that becomes automated to the people that are currently driving the trucks? And I don't see a clear plan in place at a strategic level about what's going to be uh, carried out in that particular scenario. So I'm really optimistic about the benefits and I think there there are lots of really good applications. For example, healthcare is another good app example. There, there are massive challenges to healthcare at the minute and the use of data, the effective use of data, machine learning and artificial intelligence can help to overcome a lot of those challenges and improve the efficiency and effectiveness of the service. But there are still questions to make sure that that is managed properly.
it's about having the people in place that have the level of literacy and capacity to actually think about those questions and come up with real effective solutions. Catherine, what do you think? Are you hopeful about the future in terms of data use? Yeah, I think there are lots of opportunities. I just hope people are creative and that they put their heads together, that there is that joined up thinking and discussion that there needs to be about a lot of these issues. Um, again, we've touched a few times on how education is so vital. So the next generation coming up are going to be the ones who design these great things involving data. And we need to make sure that there is work being done with children in schools so that they can make sense of data, that they have the skills um, to be able to to do great things with it in the future. Um, so yes, I, I would be very positive. Um, I think that people are more aware of data as, a, as an issue. They're more aware of their own data. But it is huge, it's massive, and it's very hard for people to get their heads around. So I think a lot of smart people need to do a lot more work, um, but that there is good things ahead, there are good things ahead. As a result of your work, though, is there anything you do differently in terms of protecting your own personal data? Um, I definitely read the small print. Um, where it says click here and have a look, I would generally have a look. I'm very wary about my location data. I switch it off where I can. I don't want people to know where I am. Um, I don't... Even simple things like if you're in a shop and they say, can we email your receipt out to you? No, I don't want you to have my email address. So I'm one of the ones who probably says no quite a lot. But at the same time, I see the benefits of data. So where I can also provide data that I can see would be useful. Um, or if you can fill in a survey um, that you think is going to be useful in the long term, I'm very supportive of that. But my own personal data and how much I put up online would be limited. Um, and certainly in terms of family information and family photographs, and I would be one of the very reluctant ones when it comes to that. But it's very hard not to get caught up in things or to get linked in with certain people or people's photographs. And But I would be wary, but I think there's a lot of good in data, but we all should be wary and we should be aware of our own personal data and information and just think twice about things. So anytime somebody asks us for our data, whether it's in person, as you say, the increasing trend towards people asking um, for your email address in order to send you your receipt or through websites such as Facebook Netflix and so forth. Anytime somebody asks us for our data, we should be thinking, why do you want that and what are you going to use it for? Yes. yes. And I do find it quite disturbing at times when, um, Byron talked about this earlier, things pop up on your screen and you know that they know enough about you that they can throw something up that they know you're going to be interested in or offers that come through from supermarkets because they know from your membership card, you know, your loyalty card, what you're buying and what you're doing. Um, it's fascinating. I think it's really interesting and I think it's going to be hard to pull all that back. But yes, it's why and what is the, the wider public interest and the wider public need for this. And quite often there, there are, I mean, even in shops, it's them making sure they have the things on the shelves for you to buy. But I find it really fascinating and I think there's still lots more to come. And would you be similarly cautious in terms of your personal data? Is there anything you do differently now? To an extent, I'm pro probably not quite as good at reading all of the small print. And I don't know if that's a general trend uh, in the population. I assume personally, because I know how these machines and machine learning is built behind the scenes, so I assume that any data that I've put on my social media or given to a company, I'm assuming that it's being used to send me targeted advertising and to convince me to buy a particular product. So I, I'm very cautious whenever I see the advertisements that they are probably targeted specifically at me and trying to convince me to buy something that I may or may not actually want. But I have to confess that I'm probably not as good at reading the small print uh, as to what I'm consenting for my data to be used for. And it's difficult because you sign up for so many things. It's, you know, maybe 
I've got five or six social media accounts for one example and I have to confess I have not went through the fine print of every single social media account to work out exactly who my data is being shared with and linked up with. I take it from the other side where I just don't post anything that I think is going to be in any way detrimental if it was released to the wider wider public or used for some other purpose. Yes, I think I need to go home and review my privacy settings on a few accounts now. So finally, at the end of each podcast, I ask um, the guests the same question, which is, what do you think it means to be a good business today, either generally or in this case, um, from the perspective of the collection and use of data? Catherine, what do you think it means to be a good business? Um, Specifically in journalism, um, I think, as I said at the start, fairness and accuracy and good storytelling will always be key. Um, For us, it's, it's the people behind the numbers in terms of data that really bring the data to life for us um, in terms of business more generally I think you need to move with the times I think you need to work out what makes you different and focus on that what are your strengths and, and play to them um, be innovative and creative is really important and another one would be just to work creatively with other people who have different skills it's okay to admit that you don't have everything within your own four walls um, we're always very good at working out with other people outside of our company um, but I think the main thing for me would be to have a good team so if you've good people around you that inspire you, that are creative, that when you put your heads together, you create something wonderful. I think that's really one of the main things is to have good people by your side. And certainly where I work, the people make it. And then as a result of that, we create good journalism, I think, as a result. It really sounds like putting people at the forefront is the heart at the heart of what the detail is, is yeah. doing and telling those stories that might otherwise never see the light of day. Yes, that's right. Byron, for you, what makes a good business? From a data perspective, I think it's really important for businesses to be fully transparent about how your data is being collected and used. And I mean transparent in a way that the general public can understand what your data is being used for, because some of the language that is used to describe how data is used is quite complex. It's quite difficult to understand and get your head around exactly what data is being used for. And part of that is uh, an education uh, issue, as you mentioned, about the schools and starting at that level, there needs to be a lot more attention around the delivery of education and ensuring that young children have got appropriate computer skills and have got appropriate numeracy skills to come through to the level of the university where we're training them now in things like machine learning, artificial intelligence and advanced analytics so that they can drive forward the businesses of tomorrow in an ethical way. And we've indeed incorporated that in our courses that we run here, as you know, around ensuring that ethics is delivered throughout the the programmes that that we offer to be the future leaders of business to make sure that's embedded in businesses. Absolutely. It's not just a bolt on at the end of the course, certainly in the new masters that you're developing, almost every module and um, where it's appropriate has some consideration of the ethical issues around the likes of data and AI. One thing we can say for sure is a very fast moving area and it's one and um, that's throwing up all sorts of different issues. So hopefully this is a conversation we'll be able to revisit at some point in the future. But thank you so much, Catherine and um, Byron, for joining me today for what was a very interesting discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. 